0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Like a lot of people in politics, I love sports. And sometimes sports is the escape that I take uh, when politics uh, uh, encroaches on me. Uh, But today... The politics of sports is very much in the news, and nobody covers it with greater incisiveness than Juliet McCour of the New York Times. Juliet is a fellow at the Institute of Politics uh, this winter, and I sat down with her the other day to talk about about doping and FIFA and uh, concussions in the NFL and uh, all the things that have made sports not a back of the newspaper story but a front of the newspaper story. Juliet, let me start with the obvious question, which either of us can answer, and that is: this is an institute of politics. Uh, this is a show that primarily focuses on politics. You're a sports writer. Uh, you're a peculiar kind of sports writer, but like, what the hell are you doing here? I'll I think is the first a question. No, it's definitely a compliment. <laughs> I, 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 as people will discover during the course of this conversation, I think you're a terrific writer and uh, Thank you. Um, good writing in whatever form it comes is is, is always great to read. So, um, But tell me a little bit about your unusual journey uh, to becoming a, a sports uh, columnist for the New York Times and... And on a very particular beat.
2: Yeah, I didn't start out to be a sports writer when I was a kid, as my mom reminded me this past weekend when I was visiting her at home in New Jersey, because she still actually doesn't want me to be a sports Sports writer, kind of like that
1: horse has left the barn, hasn't it? Your
2: she's she's Brazil, you know she's got she's got her ideas, and she said, "Are you at the University, um, university of Chicago Institute of Politics because you'll go into to politics finally?" <laughs> and I said, "Sorry, Mom, not yet, but there's still hope." When I was young, she uh, she was involved in sort of community politics, not not on a very high level, but for some, re- some reason, in some way, I ended up doing phone calls for Republican state candidates and. Uh, I'm not even sure how I got involved in all that. I was a in freshman year in in college. I was an intern for Ted Weiss, who was definitely not a Republican. No, no.
1: He was as far from a Republican as he was a very, very liberal congressman from the west side of Manhattan.
2: Right, exactly. So I ended up uh, mostly answering phone calls for him and getting him Chinese food for lunch every day with no (laughs) MSG. He always would say that. So it's definitely, that was my main job was no MSG. So I was very good at that. Very good at delivering food but i had i had uh wanted to be a politician i guess or go into to cover washington eventually and uh and that sort of took a we really- we should
1: back up for a second and talk a little about your family because that may help have informed a little bit of your interest in sort of american politics uh talk talk about your your folks and their history
2: it my both of my parents are from poland what is now uh lithuania vilnius they're from Vilnius, which was Vilno back then, which was part of Poland, during the war they were taken uh, taken away from that area and in the train cars shipped off to to Dachau, which was a concentration camp, obviously one of the most famous ones. Spent a few months there and then were were uh, sent to la- uh, the Nazi labor camps, the slave labor camps there in Germany. So they were young kids back then and didn't didn't have the best experiences there. Didn't have much food or any food. My mom's sister died of starvation, and my mom was very young. Sort of was in charge of her keep. Um, that was pretty tough. People being shot and killed inside the camps, and um, so they eventually made it to America.
1: They were the camps were uh, they they were there when the Americans rolled into the into the camp. Right.
2: Exactly. Well, my my dad was uh, liberated by the by the British, and my mom's camp was uh, in Hanover was an ammunitions camp was was liberated by the Americans. Um, no, I actually think it was opposite that my dad's camp was liberated by the Americans because just this weekend at my my aunt's funeral, somebody produced a photo of my my aunt who was pretty young back then. She was probably just a young teenager. On on top of a, a jeep, a U.S. jeep, with a couple GIs sitting there, which we had never seen this picture before. It was it was really neat because they had talked about what it was like to be liberated, but just to see the look on her face, it was pretty amazing. Did it
1: inform their feelings about the U.S.?
2: Well, initially, they went to the displaced persons camp, and, and there they heard that the just the. Stereotype of what people were saying: like the U.S. is the streets are paved with gold. There, you should go. You should go to the U.S. And they had different options; they could go to Brazil or Australia, Canada, U.S. And both of the families they didn't know each other back then, but they ended up choosing the U.S. My dad was a uh, my dad was sent to to rural Louisiana. He was sponsored by a family in the we're, tiny town we're, of Vil. Where most Platt. Polish families exactly, stuff. it was just yeah. a natural, a natural move for them. Um where they well actually they didn't speak any english when they when they went there and and it's good because the people in Cajun country didn't didn't speak English either, <laughs> so it actually worked out for them but they they were uh there working for the family for a few years and then eventually they went to New Jersey where they where my mom and dad met at this what they call the Polish Falcons camp, where the all the Polish immigrants would come and go to fancy dances and go see the soccer players play on the weekends and basically socialize with with people who uh, who were basically all from the same part of of Poland. So it was pretty neat. So that's how they met.
1: And your dad was basically a laborer, is that too?
2: Yeah. What well, you say? It seems so. Seems no, no, so no, simple. no. But I mean, I
1: mean, you know, I, but the thing is. The, you wrote, and I highly recommend this, a real tribute to your dad. Uh, he passed away a few months ago, and you wrote a wonderfully moving piece in the, in the New York Times. And the impression you got was this was a hardworking guy. This was a guy who worked hard all his life and so I, I i don't mean it in a disparaging way at all
2: no it's funny the way you said it because it, it's hard well, as to opposed hear to like way. a doctor a lawyer, no he or was a, a blue collar blue collar yeah. kind of guy and uh it's funny you just have that vision of your dad in your head and not, nobody ever really called him a laborer but i, yeah, I suppose he really that's was what,
1: that's what a feat uh podcast hosts
2: uh right no say, that's what i figured i was pre- in the real world in, coming in here in, in
1: the real world um, uh, he, he's a guy who worked very hard uh, and did hard work all his life.
2: Right. Well, he in, during the uh, during the war in the labor camps, he was only a, a kid when he was taking these big pieces of furniture and wood up six flights of stairs on no food for you know for more. I think it was a year and a half at least. When he came to America, it was it was slightly easier than that. At least they had food, but he worked as a um, sort of a. I would say, like a mechanic for for a while in a, in a quarry and then moved on to, to work at uh, a place called Foley Machinery. They worked on big ca- caterpillar tractors, and he was uh, an expert mechanic there. But, uh, yeah, he wanted to do great things with his life, be a inventor and a scientist and, and do wonderful things with an education, but he, he never got an education because he missed out on it because of the war. And when he came to America, he wasn't able to... To pick up where he left off in second grade, he they just kind of sent him to high school, and he didn't even speak English, so he missed out on all that education. But he was the smartest guy I knew, and um, and uh, yeah, he was great.
1: And and built your home in Jersey. Uh, he, he, you said he and his pals built your home, the home that you grew up in.
2: Exactly. I well, for nine years we lived in a in a house that my parents had bought, which was in a I wouldn't say it's a terrible town, but it was a, a town that that was the that had a John's Manville asbestos factory in it, so you know if you pick a town that you'd like to grow up, grow up in, that probably wouldn't be the one. So, uh, and we lived abutting a uh, a place called Vinnie's Auto Salvage, so that was sort of in our backyard. So he saved his money, and we moved not a
1: bucolic to, setting.
2: That's that's a, that's kind of an understatement, <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because it was all Polish people. You didn't have to speak English. Everybody knew each other. Everybody went to school at the same school. It was it was it was actually a nice place to live. Um, until we went to the couple of towns over, which was really great. It was, it was more of a bucolic town. It was a big township, and my dad bought a plot of land and, and built the house with his own hands with a bunch of friends. You know, somebody, some guy knew some plumbing. Some guy was an electrician. They all just got together and, and built their own house.
1: And you were the youngest uh, of the kids by, by a fair amount, right? So uh, I want to get to the sports element of this. Your dad— um, sort of was your sports mentor, even though he, he, American sports were new to him as well.
2: Exactly. We, I don't think we ever saw football on television, American football, not even once, but we, every weekend we watched watch Wide World of Sports back when they had that, you know, a lot of Olympic sports on that Saturday, like preceded by some bowling, we Watched some bowling and then some boxing. So we just kind of watched that. But most of the time we went out of, um, and did things together. We did any sport you could think of we tried he was an excellent skier we skied almost every weekend in the winter and then he would he would let me skip out of school during the week and uh take me skiing during the week without telling my mom
1: yeah
2: Uh, she only found out later when we actually our car broke down going to the ski slope where he had to call her and say our car was broken down and she was asking why we were there on a school day when i was supposed to be in school so that kind of ruined it for us, ruined our secret. But we did all kinds of sports. And he was a wonderful dad. He helped me with basketball and was... You and know, you sh- played
1: sports in school? and.
2: All the time. Yeah. I grew up... Our family was pretty sporty. My dad was a semi-pro soccer player. So we grew up playing volleyball, you know, pick up games of volleyball in the backyard and going for runs and things like that, doing lots of camping. But I always was into sports because my dad loved it. And I'm... And I just like doing things that he liked to do. So I was a, bas- a runner initially, and then a basketball player.
1: And then, and you went to college, and you were a rower.
2: Yeah, I tried something completely different. I, I was a rower starting my my sophomore year. I started to row, and then I did that after college, also for the New York Athletic Club. What
1: caused you to do that?
2: Well, I couldn't play basketball because I got hurt. I hurt my knee in a car accident my senior year of high school. So uh, I, I saw a uh, flyer on the wall of our dorm saying you should go to try to to join the rowing team and I thought rowing that's great it's it doesn't use your legs it only uses your arms I could do this <laughs> little did i know it uses you use mostly your legs and in fact every single sinew in your entire body is required in rowing but but i fell in love with it because it was Is a good team sport, but it was also kind of torture. So you're all in this torture together. And it was also beautiful because you'd be out in the water. And um, I went to school um, at Columbia University. So we were on the tip of Manhattan. And, uh, you know, it was pretty silent up there and very peaceful, as peaceful as you can get in Manhattan.
1: Did you have aspirations to be a a world champion rower?
2: Of course, yeah. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a world champion uh, track and field person track and field athlete and i i recently found this this uh write-up that i did in fifth grade saying that i would i would be the first woman to win five gold medals in track and field and i would be the first woman to do that over men that's a quote <laughs> so i would wow. not only win five gold medals but i would beat all the men too so it was, i had high aspirations and
1: and be the person who wrote the column about yourself right, Winning right. Your I, five gold medals that's i
2: didn't even need a publicity a publicity <laughs> team i could do everything but in the end, I wanted to be—I wanted to be uh, on the Olympic team in rowing, um, and that didn't pan out for me either. So I went to journalism school instead.
1: Did, did you make an effort to to be in the Olympics?
2: Well, at the New York Athletic Club, we had an elite elite team that that raced internationally and, and nationally, and we were very good. But unfortunately, there were people who were a little bit better than us. But you I,
1: competed and tried to. Yeah, qualify. I finished
2: second and won nationals to the to the two two women who eventually went on to the to the olympics but um i tried i tried i tried for several years i spent all the money i had saved by being a paralegal at a big law firm in new york i think i went to journalism school with eight dollars according to, to the financial aid department <laughs> i still have that piece of paper above my desk that said you come here with eight dollars and uh and i was really hoping that which this is journalism about thing what some folks
1: can make in journalism today, but that's a. We can we can right. get to that? That's
2: exactly. I, I definitely later. didn't go into journalism for the money.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, l- let's fast forward to you. You went to journalism school. You you became a reporter. You had sort of the traditional route in terms of you. You went to a smaller paper uh, and worked your way up. But um, how did you? You didn't go as you said expecting to be a sports writer.
2: No, I wanted. I still wanted to go into do something with politics. Because in our immigrant family, all your relatives, when they see you, the first thing that they would say is, you're going to be Miss America, and you're also going to be president. So this is what I heard growing up. You're going to be Miss America. You're also going to be the first woman president. So I thought, well, I, I wasn't Miss America. I missed out on that. I'm not going to be the president. So at least I could still cover cover Washington. You know,
1: Jimmy Breslin, the old columnist, uh, once said that sports writing is the first cousin of political writing. So you you came close there i mean the sense of of a dynamic process um is 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 the same in certain ways that sense of competition and so on in both i mean i was a political writer for years and uh, i'm a an avid sports fan and you know i have a keen sense of the stakes being much larger in politics although people can be as passionate about both but there is sort of a relationship between between the two?
2: I think they're very similar. And it's funny, I live in Washington right now, and people who They do
1: politics there, right?
2: Well, they try. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they're successful, sometimes not. But uh, people in the dog park, they don't want to talk politics, they want to talk about sports. And they're more passionate, some of them are more passionate about sports than they are about politics. So it, it sort of ignites the same same fire in people. Politics, sports, and religion kind of all go together, and it it's uh people could be totally rational about their politics and totally irrational about sports uh, but it but it uh, it allows for a lot of good writing
1: But now, at the New York Times, you know when you think of sports writing, you think about folks writing columns about whether Peyton Manning has anything left, or uh, you know uh, what the prospects are for the for for uh, the Cubs this year, which are quite good, by the way, but the but that's not what you do. You write about your sports writing has taken you to places like Iraq. Uh, your sports writing has taken you into the sort of depths of a scandal that you know sadly is enveloping this institution of sport, as it is other institutions. Um, how did you carve out this particular niche?
2: It, it's as if I'm trying to – I'm a sports columnist who's trying not to write about sports, which is not <laughs> really what I'm trying to do. But I just like writing about things that interest me. And I, I, when the Iraq War was was going on in 2005, I really wanted to cover it. And unfortunately, I really wasn't a foreign correspondent. But I managed to find a way to, to write about it in terms of the intersection between athletes and and. and sp- um, athletes in the war and I wrote a lot about former athletes who were injured in the war Yeah, you,
1: uh, the, you're a touching column uh, about a, a, a pair of best friends from North Dakota who went in, off they were uh, reservists who got called to active duty, sent to Iraq. One died one was grievously injured uh, and their bond was really around football originally
2: Right, yeah, so that they- I mean, I tried to find something, I tried to find stories I wanted to write that had something to do with sports, and, and those guys were um, National Guard guys, and um, who were really as tight as they can be, and they went to Iraq, and unfortunately, they met up with the IED, and that was, um, that was the end of one of them, and the other one had lost his leg and, you know, had a lot of psychological scars afterwards.
1: That was 10 years ago when you wrote that piece. Have you kept in touch with him?
2: I have, yeah. It's at, we're friends on Facebook, so I could. He, he's been running in, in marathons. He has a dog. He goes hunting.
1: Even though he lost part of his foot.
2: Sure. Oh, yeah. He's 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 fine now when it comes to, to the physical part of him. But for these stories, I, I think I spent three weeks in Williston, North Dakota, before this. Well, just on the start at the start of this oil boom.
1: I think Williston is where Phil Jackson's from. That's that? right.
2: Yeah. See, there's always the sports Got a head connection. Full of, head full of
1: trivia here. Right. But
2: yeah he has a you know the the high school gym is named after him I don't think he's maybe he's been back once or twice ever since but uh but it's a great little town that that is now i' i've been told this gigantic oil boom town where it's you know yeah well the I boom is busting
1: it. right now so Williston's probably having some problems right as we speak
2: yeah but it's a it is a wonderful town and a, and the sports story allowed me to write about something completely different which was the fact that the uh these uh national guys, go- Guard guys were going over to Iraq and these this using this equipment that was completely not appropriate I mean they were just driving down the car down the road with humvees that were not armored at all didn't have any armor on them and so an IED would not only damage the car pretty badly but basically blow it all up because it had no protection so in the in the grand scheme of things you know it's a sports story but it really isn't
1: and and that and what so what are some of the other th- Areas in which you um, snuck the uh, pill in with the applesauce and uh, wrote about things that you were profoundly interested in that were related to sports but weren't the traditional sports story? What are the ones that stand out in your mind?
2: Well, before the 2008 uh, Olympics in Beijing, I traveled around China to write about the sports system in China which I did write a little bit about the sports system but I wanted to write about just athletes life and drugs and how these athletes were were oppressed it, it is it is a lot about sports but it's something that if you're just a typical x's and o's person you wouldn't you wouldn't be doing i really wanted to know how these Chinese athletes lived and how they grew up. I mean, a lot of them were just taken out. How of How much homes. freedom did
1: you get to write that story? Not from the Times, but from the Chinese.
2: I actually got a, a lot of freedom because there were a lot. There was a lot of unrest in Tibet at the time, and this is where it helps me being a sports reporter. So I'm sure that somebody who's in charge of of, of looking after the journalists there said, "Well, all these journalists are running to Tibet to write about these terrible things going on in Tibet, but there's a sports reporter for the New York Times in Beijing." You know, which one do we really go after? So they they basically left me alone. And I I went all over the country finding these really great stories about, well, one athlete was basically forced to be a a canoe athlete, even though he had terrible blood disease and wanted to quit for many, many years. But they wouldn't let him quit. It was almost like forced labor. And uh, I traveled all around almost free. Uh, But eventually they figured out that they shouldn't have done that because all the stories ran. And when we got to the Olympics, right before the Olympics, we wrote about, um, we broke the story that most of the gymnasts are probably underage who are at the Olympics. And in the past, too, you're supposed to be 16 the the year of the Olympics, depending on when the rules change, 15 or 16. But uh, that most of the Chinese athletes were underage. So after that I found somebody following me around the rest of the Olympics, some some guy who I don't even know, just in the regular uh regular clothes, which is following me around the entire Olympic village. So it was a little bit late for them.
1: You know, now we have this situation where the Russians have been sort of busted for uh for doping and cheating and doing uh all kinds of things to advantage their Olympic athletes. Um, is the Olympic institution sullied we you know we we idealized the olympic uh, the olympic uh, ideal probably um more than we should have from the beginning when you think about the 36 olympics in berlin and how that was used as a propaganda tool and so on but um what kind of shape is the whole institution of the olympics in right now and what should, what should be done about the russians and 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 how pervasive do you think that kind of cheating is you can this is answer going to be a downer. Th- pick no. out the three or four okay. questions that I just asked that you okay. like the best and answer them. <laughs> um
2: well in terms of the Russian problem, I mean most of the they, there was uh systematic doping found to be at the inside the Russian track and field association. And and I've covered doping for the last, you know, 14 years of of my career and I can tell you that I was very surprised. Um uh, I think they should be kicked out of the Olympics, not only just the track and field association, but the entire country. Because if people think that just the track and field, little little world of Russian track and field was the only person in the Russian Olympic Committee who knew that there was systematic doping going on, then you know, they're fooling themselves. I'm a little bit of a... I take a little bit of a hard line when it comes to doping and cheating because I've really written a lot about it and have seen so much. I want to talk
1: about Lance Armstrong, right? Yeah, that's a but we'll 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 get to him in a second. Right? Um, What do you think will happen?
2: I'm not sure. I mean, I what I think should happen is that they should be cut cut from the Olympics. But but politics runs runs sports. It runs every single sport. American, especially the International Olympic Committee. Um, I think that they don't have a guts enough to, to kick somebody out of the Olympics for that, which is sad because there are a lot of athletes, especially here in the U.S. and the U.K., their anti-doping agency is very good. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of dopers or at least some dopers in the system, but they are tested very well and, uh, and under a very strict um, supervision. So I, I think there will be a lot of cheaters who, who are at the Olympics because, if Russia is allowed in the Olympics. And what
1: about other countries? Do you think that what the Russians did was unique? You talk about the Chinese. Do you suspect they're doing the same kinds of things?
2: Well, when I was walking around China basically by myself with an interpreter, I, I had asked some athletes there about doping, and nobody really, of course, wanted to to admit that they had been doping. Um, but it was pretty obvious. I mean, the effects of steroid use, you could kind of tell when, when a woman has been on steroids for a long time. Uh, I think it's it was pervasive in China, whether it is now, I don't know. But any any time a country wants to win gold medals and when it stands for something more than just winning, when it stands for like, we win gold medals and look how powerful our nation is, something like Russia was thinking. I'm sure China's thinking, thinking the same thing. And in Kenya, they have a really big doping problem when it comes to their long-distance runners, middle and long-distance runners. They have no anti-doping agency. That's what they're known for is these long-distance runners. But are not tested at all, so I, I I don't know whether it's systematic there, but but certainly people are turning a blind eye to it.
1: One more thing on the Olympics, you you wrote a piece about um, that I was interested in about what happens to the sort of residual structures uh, after the Olympics. Uh, these Olymp- uh, We had a huge thing in Chicago uh, where Chicago made a huge bid for the two thousand and. Uh, 16 Olympics, I guess, right? Was it mm-hmm. 16? 16, yeah. Because yeah. we lost to Rio. And um, it was sold as a, a way of sort of a, almost a, as an urban renewal uh, program that stadium was gonna, one stadium was going to be on the south side. And, you know, there were elaborate plans for the city. There was, um, uh, I think there was some, the city basically rallied, but there was some concern about what Uh, what it would mean we've seen now boston completely reject it i mean are are olympics a good deal for cities uh today
2: this is hard for me to say they're they're i love the olympics and i would have loved to have the olympics in chicago the bad thing about them losing the olympics was they would have used a lot of existing stadiums yes and it was a great i thought it was a great plan but, of course, they had to go to Rio because of the politics of it. Yes. And, and they've— I must
1: say, you know, what happened was uh, uh, Chicago—this was so uh, such a source of shame here in Chicago that we got beat on a kind of rigged vote. You know, you'd think Chicagoans would be hip to those kinds of things. And we got to uh, the vote, uh, uh, which was, I guess, in Copenhagen, right?
2: Right, yeah. And—,
1: uh, and- eliminated in the first round and it was obvious that it was an inside kind of deal and the american olympic committee was highly unpopular with some of the other uh some of the rest of the committee and there was all kinds of bidding and trading and things that went well beyond the realm of sports uh and uh and we got skunked on a on an inside vote that that felt very political uh to those of us in chicago
2: well, it was completely political. I mean, you can almost hear them trading votes when we're sitting in the room waiting for the votes to 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 come down, but but for, for the results to come down. But it was uh, it was really shocking to everybody. I know that I had a story saying like, Chicago won the Olympics, and you know, we had to have all these stories ready to go for the web. And uh, yeah, maybe you that could share to,
1: that. Maybe we can frame it and post it. Somewhere. Right? Yeah, it's a yeah. right
2: exactly. So it was a it was a shock, but it, you know, you have to consider the international olympic committee is all about old white men who have been giving um you know trading votes and doing old these white things men For things that's true yeah right, that's good but mm-hmm. not enough evidently we've been in, in, in the ioc for that long it just was yeah people have been trading votes for so so long and they have their buddies uh, that they have been dealing with politically in, in the ioc for so long it just didn't do you chicago, think it would have been
1: good for chicago to get the olympics
2: I think it would have been great for Chicago. I'm waiting for the the US to get the Olympics back. Mm-hmm. The problem is everybody hates us. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'll I, I hope that I get to see it in my lifetime. So my daughter gets gets a chance to to, to feel the Olympic spirit in her own country. I know in eighty four when it was in Los Angeles that made a huge impact on me as a as a young athlete. I mean my daughter's only four, so the US has a couple years to, to work on this but
1: Well they're inveterate. The US uh OC are inveterate listeners to this particular podcast. So your message will resonate loudly uh, here. Talk, you know, talk about another. Um, you talk about old white men. These weren't all white men. But talk about FIFA. And, you know, there's the most popular sport in the world, right? I, I would get, I imagine, soccer. Oh,
2: Of course. Well, and yeah, they don't have all. I was having this discussion with someone the other day. They're not all old white men and neither no, is the IOC but even if they're not old and white they, they still kind of act like old white men <laughs> so there's still that kind of corruption that that goes through you know generations of these people who take these positions and FIFA's full of them
1: I'm getting to be an old white man so I'm trying not to take this personally so you
2: could, you too can be corrupt
1: yes exactly uh but uh what what what, what? How could the FIFA scandal have been so large and so pervasive and lasted for so long uh, without someone blowing the whistle?
2: That's the question that we're going to talk about in the seminar today, actually. And it's uh, I think the problem with FIFA is that there's not that much turnover. You know, it's the same people again and again who are doing favors to their friends in these countries that don't have that much money for sports, you could be a FIFA representative from a small island in the Caribbean and be per- pretty powerful in your country and, and go to FIFA, get a $30,000 watch from somebody. A FIFA president could come to your country, give you $250,000 worth of playing fields, and give you a nice jacket that says FIFA on it. And, and I don't think you're going to be the person who raises their hand and say, say uh, I don't want to accept this $30,000 watch. And the nature of the
1: scandal was basically um, – where matches were sent and how pairings were done i mean do you and i how much of it actually went to the bottom line who won and who lost
2: i have no idea but there is a lot of match fixing questions in soccer you know there's been match fixing problems for um for many many years we haven't gotten to that level yet and i'm you know, you'd be naive to think that there was never that problem in FIFA. Because really, on every level, if you could steal money anywhere in any level of whether it's the sports marketing or the television rights or the, you know, are you, how much do you want for a vote to to, to have uh, a country win the win the World Cup? I mean, everywhere no, you could get money, better. people yeah. were right. <laughs> well, and Russia, maybe you know they're they're investigating it, but anywhere you could get money, people were skimming off the top or getting bribes or, you know the uh, the guy, Mich- uh, Michel Platini, who was uh, supposed to be the the successor to the, the longtime uh, president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, he took $2 million from FIFA, and, oh, he forgot to to, to mention it to anybody. And didn't anybody get a receipt for that? So it's, uh, it's, it's so corrupt. <laughs> it's really amazing at, at every level, at every step of the way. So match-fixing, I think, is something that we'll be talking a lot about in the future.
1: Today, even as we speak— uh, there's a new scandal in sport, which is in tennis. I, I knew as soon as they got out of those white tennis whites that things were going to go downhill. But they uh, now it appears that there's widespread bribery um, in tennis, um, and that does and that did go to match uh, fixing apparently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What what are what are sports fans supposed to make of all of this? Uh, everything seems to be, and you know, I don't want to be too glum about it because I'm, I'm a huge NBA fan, huge baseball fan, you know, huge football fan. But uh, everything's beginning to feel like professional wrestling. Uh, so, bring my spirits up here.
2: Hmm. Let's see how I could try. Um- it's it's tough. After all these years of being a sports writer, I realize it's less joy than it should be. You know, you hear about all these scandals, including the one about tennis. You know, I'm not surprised because people have been talking about match fixing in tennis for a long time. But I think they're always the good guys in each sport, no matter how corrupt it is. Uh, Roger Federer spoke out about the the match fixing. He wants names of the people who who took money and who who threw their matches and and uh. I can't say for hundred percent sure that Roger Federer is the is the is perfectly uh is a perfect athlete and has never done anything wrong in his life, but he comes pretty close. I mean if you cover somebody for a long time you sort of understand which side of the line they stand on and, and I guess you have to find who your hero might be and, and realize that they might disappoint you, but you could put your blinders on and move forward and try to cheer for them anyway.
1: Isn't it um, difficult when there's so much money on the table? Uh, You mentioned earlier television rights and all the promotional rights, all the cross-marketing and so on. When there's so much money on the table, isn't it hard to keep these sports? Uh, Look at what happened with professional football and some of the decisions that were made around these uh, domestic abuse uh, issues where the commissioner's office appeared not to want to engage uh because they didn't want to they didn't want to upset the apple cart in what is a very lucrative um industry
2: well did they upset it anyway even when all this stuff about ray rice came out when the video came out of a he's a, a former baltimore ravens running back was pu- punched his right. then fiance um it was on video people got upset for a while but you know people are going back to the NFL as if nothing happened and the bigger problem with the NFL for me is or I guess just as big as the, the concussion problems, yes. which they've obviously they've proven that they knew it for years that that these repetitive hits are hurting people's brains and for me I interviewed um, my first interview with an old-time player about it was Rayfield Wright who was a former cowboy Dallas Cowboys Hall of Famer a Hall of Famer from the Dallas Cowboys and he has Alzheimer's, the beginnings of Alzheimer's, and to, to sit with somebody for a week who's, you know, basically their mind is, is going very slowly is, is, is really – it really had quite an effect on me and the way I look at football. I mean, he he was sad that he never played basketball because he had the opportunity to play high level basketball. That he chose the wrong sport, and back then they were having you know they had really big hits. It was call get, called getting your bell rung, and you almost like right. pat on the back for it. Right. No one ever took any time off. Doctors didn't even write anything down about his head injuries ever in his all of his medical reports, which I went through. There wasn't one mention of of a concussion or being knocked out, which he was on live television. So. So that's a problem. Where do you the NFL think the league is now
1: it? on that? I mean, do you, you they have a concussion protocol? Do you think that they're doing enough?
2: I don't think you can ever do enough when it comes to these things. Um, they they always say like, well, why don't why is it why is there so much negative publicity or negative stories about the NFL? They want you to write about all the positive things going on in the NFL. Well, it's kind of hard when this issue is still going on. I mean, repetitive head trauma doesn't stop just because the NFL now recognize, recognizes it and say, yes, it could be a problem. I mean, you wonder all the guys you're going to see in this weekend's championship But how do you have a violent
1: sport and not have these risks?
2: I don't think you can. I think that's the problem, is that people have to reconcile themselves with watching a sport in which your heroes will be losing their minds later on in their life, you know, getting these... Uh, neurological diseases or alzheimer's or parkinson's and all these things that go along with hitting your brain over and over again and uh uh, last year i wrote about uh, a college college player former college player at the university of north carolina yeah i read that piece who reached out his family had reached out to me he was homeless mentally ill had drug problems he was living on the street in in florida i did a long interview with with him and he said his he thought his problems came from football because it happened right uh, mm-hmm. during his college years and then right after it really got bad, all these problems of controlling his temper and and just having control of his life.
1: So Goodell, Commissioner Goodell, uh, it's fair to say will go down in history as a kind of textbook case of how not to man- manage crises, uh, public relations crises, and yet he has strong support uh, from the owners. And it raises the question, is his job or is any commissioner's job to, pro- to protect the integrity of the game or to protect the bottom line for owners?
2: That's the problem. I and mean, he's, you know, the owners see Roger Goodell as the guy who ushered in the richest, richest era of the NFL, and that's all they care about. And fans have to know that this is, this is what they're watching, that they're watching a sport that's hurting their athletes. Not everybody's going to have this, this problem but uh, if you're if you're predisposed to it, if you or if you have terrible concussion, if you have massive headaches at the end of your life, or you know you die early, or if you're a guy like Dave Dewerson who sh- who had so much depression and so many problems that he shot himself in the chest so they could preserve yes. his brain, Chicago Bears, right? I Great mean, I, I mean uh, when you read these things and you turn that was on the television really poignant that Sunday. he
1: shot himself in the chest so that his brain could be preserved and studied because he knew. Something was wrong with him, and that it was a consequence uh, of his playing days. Let's talk about. We were talking about fallen heroes before. You wrote a book called "Cycle of Lies" about Lance Armstrong, who may be the most uh, uh, dramatic story in this whole doping saga and and in in, in the in the annals of fallen heroes. Um, how early? Did you get into that story, and and how early did you suspect that something was amiss?
2: Well, in 2004, when I first started uh, at the Times, our cycling writer didn't want to cover the story about this guy named Tyler Hamilton— Um, He had tested positive, uh, and he was supposedly the nicest guy ever. And the cycling writer said, I'm not going to write about that because he's too nice. He would never take drugs. So I was assigned to covering the story about Tyler Tyler Hamilton, who was Lance Armstrong's former teammate, former lieutenant, which is a a guy who helps him up in the mountains and helps him win the Tour de France. And uh, along this uh, interview, which took me probably about a week and a half because I chased him around the country as he tried to, uh, to avoid me. Eventually, we, I was in his car and I said, yeah, it's too bad that you're in a sport like cycling, which has such a long history of doping. And he turned to me uh, with these like puppy dog eyes, like what a nice guy kind of face and said, uh, there's no doping in cycling. It's a clean sport. And then at that moment, I I thought, oh, God, he's lying. This is a dirty sport. Still dirty. So uh after that, I went. Uh, I was really interested in the Lance Armstrong story because nobody was, had been able to break it. I mean, it had been going on for many, many years. And a, a journalist named David Walsh, who worked for the Sunday Times in London, had been chasing after him for years and writing books about him that hinted about his doping. And but nobody ever, nobody ever bought it. Everybody who was in love with him because of the cancer story just thought he was perfect. So I chased after him for about ten years before we. Um, Slowly over the years, we started breaking stories about his teammates, doping, um, admitted to us for the first time that they had doped to help Lance win. That was in 2006. So slowly we, we were chipping, chipping away at it until, until, we, uh, you know, until he was exposed in the end.
1: How uh, difficult was it, the pursuit of that story and how much return fire did you get from Lance and his group to try and prevent you from writing these stories?
2: Well, the first story I ever written about him specifically was not actually wasn't even about him specifically, it was his two teammates who came forward to us and said they had used a blood booster, it's an EPO and sort of an endurance booster mm-hmm. to help him win the Tour de France. Um, and the, that day that it ran, his lawyer had called me and said he was going to sue me if I ever wrote about Lance again. And uh, he said, I failed journalism school. And and, uh, and then Lance had called somebody at the AP and they wrote a whole story saying, i how I would, how Lance said I was a hack and I was the worst journalist ever. I was, it was like a hatchet job. And I remember my mom seeing that story. And <laughs> she's saying. You should have gone into <laughs> politics where
1: they treat you well.
2: Exactly. <laughs> See, that, I mean, that's exactly what it was. It was spin, right? Everybody's trying to spin and control people. It's exactly like politics. You know, mm-hmm. how do we control this story? How
1: did you feel about it? well Well, did you feel challenged by that well
2: yeah i mean i the good thing was is i didn't really care about cycling this is the one good thing about me not being much of a sports person you know (laughs) like my whole career is in sports and i could never see myself leaving that that's totally not me but uh the good thing was i i don't care about covering the tour de france i could care less about having any access to lance armstrong um i thought it was a challenge i thought you know i know this guy's doping because his teammate said he basically said he was you know that guy Tyler Hamilton said the sport is clean when I know he was dirty he was a terrible liar so uh, you know it's it's, it's fun when somebody says, you, you know, you're never going to do anything. I'm going to try to intimidate you. And, and my lucky for me, I have this, this great job at the New York Times that allows me to, to, to write things that people actually listen to. But
1: there's the other side of Lance Armstrong, right? He was, a, he was a cancer survivor. He has his foundation. He was seen as a heroic figure for the things that he did to help people with cancer, to bring attention to uh, their struggles and so on. Was all of that a sham?
2: No. I, I said, as I said this many times, and I wrote about it in the book, I think Lance Armstrong did more for cancer awareness than anyone in the history of of cancer awareness, you know, with the with the yellow wristbands. Right. Everybody was wearing them. John Gary was wearing them on the, you know, as he was running for president. All over the world, they were wearing them, millions of people. And people really paid a lot of, of attention to that and gave a lot, millions of dollars to that because of Lance Armstrong. It, but that doesn't mean that he's he's a dirty lying cheat, you know, one of the biggest cheaters in sporting history because he lied to those people who thought he was a god, looked to him for inspiration for cancer, and and lied to their faces. I mean, people did, you did have not any, like did that. Did
1: you have any reluctance about tearing that icon down?
2: Well, it makes me sound terrible, but I, I don't think so. I mean, I remember once when we had. Uh, it was right when I was going on my honeymoon. It was the morning of my honeymoon. I should not have checked my, my machine at work. But we had just written about As your
1: husband probably right. As Right. He tried to hide my phone,
2: but I found it. But, uh, yeah, he, um, <laughs> I turned it on. And um, we had just written about Floyd Landis, who was the former yes. teammate who wrote, uh, who said that Lance had doped and the whole U.S. postal team doped. And that was the beginning of Lance's big fall. So we, I had written a lot about Lance before then, and then I—, I had a couple strong stories before I went off to to my honeymoon in, ba- in Bali, um, and uh, I remember getting a phone call. From this gave a- your
1: husband an early taste of what it was like to be married to a journalist. I guess. Yeah, it? he's a journalist too, I so see. he's
2: uh, you know uh, he's he's used to it already, being tortured by me and and by his own uh, employers, but. Um, but the problem i got this e- i got this message from a dad who was calling from minnesota and he was he was crying on the phone he was saying that you know i was the worst person ever that i should i should go to hell that i should never write about lance armstrong because i didn't wow. see lance armstrong coming into this children's hospital sitting on the bed with his son and saying like hey you you know you could make it look i did and, you know, his voice was cracking and he was calling me all these sorts of names. And then, you know, I, I remember, I mean, I must have been shaking when I hung up the phone and I said, like, oh, God, like, what am I doing? But my well, job, you know, you my... Were right.
1: You were right. You, I mean, ultimately, he had pulled a massive fraud off and trampled on a lot of people along the way. In addition to, I mean, it's like this duality in his profile. I mean, the uh, the... The heroic story, and then this subterranean sort of fraud that was—he was pulling off on a massive scale. It's hard not to write that story.
2: Well, you have—you have to do your job. I mean, I have to do my job, and you know, he was cheating a lot of people, cheated a lot of guys who were clean, trying to ride in the Tour de France. You know, people pick their heroes, and they have to be careful. That's sort of my my warning all the time.
1: Yeah, this is where I want. To kind of finish, um, you know, Charles Barkley, who I love, said uh, on uh, one broadcast, uh, he said, you know, we're not heroes. You know, we're athletes. And, you know, they are good guys, they are bad guys. Uh, but just because you can uh, put a ball in a basket doesn't make you uh, a hero. And yet we want to put all of our sports heroes on pedestals. We want to feel as if they're all high-character people. Um, you're sort of in certain ways about removing that filter. So um, that's challenging. Uh, but are there people who you've met in sports who are as good as their – who are the people who are as good as you hoped they would be?
2: Hmm. I have to name somebody right after all these years. Uh, <clears throat> uh. What we can I, take a pause for a right. message from the sponsors. <laughs> um, Pedro Martinez, former pitcher, was a—he's uh, pretty authentic, and uh, he doesn't—I mean, I can't tell if somebody's doping or cheating, but you know he had the arms of a fourteen-year-old girl, so I'm thinking that he probably wasn't <laughs> using that many steroids or any steroids. But uh,
1: boy, I'll tell you what—if that's what his arms look like, then I hope the Cubs run out and find a fourteen-year-old girl to pitch next season because. That guy was awfully good.
2: Right, he was. Oh, he was good. He was a natural talent. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of drugs coming out of the Dominican Republic, right. and of course, they have a lot to. Those kids have a lot to shoot for when they're when they're trying to get out of there to make big money. They grow up, you know, some of them grow up pretty poor areas, yes. with not too much. But he was a very genuine person, and I, um, I've interviewed him many times, and and I think that he was one of the good guys.
1: Do you find yourself not wanting to? get engaged with someone on that level, not wanting to become sort of bought into the image of a person because it makes it harder for you to do the work that you do?
2: No. I mean, if there was a tip that somebody said that Pedro Martinez was using drugs, that, you know, I'd be the first person on it. And I think that the people I interview know that. And, you know, I said to somebody said, do you have many friends in sports after all these years? And I said, well... Unfortunately, I really I can't say that I'm friends with any athletes and that that's not my job to be friends with them. I'm certainly friendly with them and some of them know a little bit about me and my family and I know about theirs, but I think they know that I that I draw the line at my job and I'm going to write what truth is and you know, if you're not doing any bad things then then you could take my calls.
1: And do you still consider yourself a sports fan? I mean, you 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 your life as you said you're young your early years were um, all about playing sports, watching sports. Uh, it was a big bond between you and your dad and so on. Um, you still feel that way?
2: I still love watching sports. I mean, I think it's it's better at a lower level now, even though I'm sure there's a lot of th- bad things going on at these lower levels. But, well, I could watch basketball at any level and think that it's the greatest sport ever and, and try to turn off my dreams journalism switch and just just be a fan because i grew up in a town in in, uh, bridgewater new jersey that was like the hoosiers of new jersey (laughs) it's like everybody in the town went to basketball games on friday nights it was it was it was a lot of fun so i could still watch things and enjoy it but you know at the olympics if you see somebody break a hundred meter record you know can you enjoy it for that split second yes but can you know a second later, but, but you, you wonder but how you, they did but it. But you want to see the drug test too. That sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, the just watching these people do these amazing things is is a lot of fun. I mean, that's that's part of the great part of the job. You working
1: out your four year old? Is she already? Uh, you, you've got? Is she going to be the Olympic rower, or uh, are you going to live your sports dreams through her now?
2: No, I said to her, she can do any sport she wants, as long as it's rowing. <laughs>
1: Good. Well, I'll be looking for her, and let's see, twenty uh, maybe in sixteen years from now. So that would be the uh, two thousand and thirty-two Olympics.
2: I've had my hotel <laughs> my hotel rooms booked already. I'm
1: all set. Uh, uh, Juliet, Juliet McCurd, thank you so much, uh, not just for being here, but also for being at the Institute of Politics, um, where you're shining a light on the politics of sports.
2: Oh, thanks. It's a great opportunity.
0: Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.